for just about everything for the outdoors. Go to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Fall Podcast, where the focus is on deer hunting, tips, tricks, tactics, and stories from across the Midwest. And now, here is your host, Aaron Blisey. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blisey, and this is Episode 7. On today's episode, I've got a guest from Michigan, a fellow Michigander. His name is Kevin Vistason. He's got his own hunting podcast called the Deer Hunter Podcast. He's located down by Lake St. Clair. And he's got a lot of good information that we're going to be discussing today. We're going to be talking a lot of public lands, public land hunting, you know, pressured whitetails, hunting big woods, also kind of mobile setups. And we also dive into the hunting culture here in Michigan. And we talk a little bit about that. We talk a lot about baiting whitetails. We talked for a little over an hour, but we could have talked for four hours. And we're going to do another episode and kind of cover some more things on this. But we also talk about gear as well. And it was just a good, you know, BS session between two fellow hunters. So I've been really looking forward to talking to Kevin. He's had his podcast for a year now, and I've been following him ever since the beginning. And uh, he does a really good job with it. So with that being said, you know, We're going to jump in here with Kevin, and uh, I hope everybody enjoys it. All right, we're back here for uh, another podcast. Today I have the man, the myth, the legend, Kevin Vistason on with me from the Deer Hunter Podcast. Kevin, how you doing? I'm doing well this morning. How are you? Good, man. I, uh, you know, it's, we've, you and I've been talking here trying to, trying to get hooked up and get a time and it's it's six o'clock on saturday morning here <laughs> and uh we're doing this over coffee uh i i couldn't imagine being anywhere else right now yeah i like it, it usually i for the most part gets i don't want to say get stuck but the only opportunity time that i have to ever do these things is uh 
typically on a weeknight after a long day of work and my brain's not, you know, a hundred percent. So this is nice to be able to actually get up and have some coffee and it's a great time to talk about deer hunting. So for sure, man. And you know, I, I just want to say thank you to you. You know, you've, you've had the deer hunter podcast for, for a year now, and I've been following you ever since the beginning. And, you know, this will be episode seven here and you've been kind of an inspiration to me um, on, on my venture getting into this, you know, I started listening to podcasts like two years ago and it was Mark Kenyon's wired to hunt. I think that's everybody's story when you hear it, but, uh, he had Mark Drury on one time and I was going on a out of state trip hunt and I'm like, well, I had 10 hours to go to Missouri and I'm like, I'm going to listen to this. And ever since, man, I don't know if I've listened to music in the truck going anywhere since 2015 or 16 or something like that. And, you've been a big part into what I'm doing. And I, you know, I really appreciate that. And, and, uh, you guys are doing some good things over there for sure. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's funny that you sit reference that particular episode. Cause, uh, that's kind of how this whole thing started for me. It was two years ago now, I think, uh, two falls ago where I was just scrolling through Facebook and, uh, an ad came across for wire to hunt podcast and interview with Mark Drury, lo and behold, and uh obviously i knew i didn't know about wire to hunt but i knew who mark drury was and uh i thought man sweet uh i'm gonna check this out and i listened to it and i'm like oh wow this guy's from michigan this is awesome so you know i started consuming those pretty heavily and moved into consuming uh a bunch of different hunting podcasts and then at one point i just thought you know there's not anything exactly like the guys that i associate with that deer camp and hang out with all year long and the way that we kind of talk and converse about deer hunting. Um, maybe, maybe I'll do a podcast and the more and more I dwelled on it, the more and more I thought, yeah, I got to do this. I got to give it a shot and we got to fire it up. And yeah, we just kind of wrapped up our first, our first year. So moving into year two, learned a lot and going forward, pretty excited about the future. Yeah, and that's that's kind of where I was at with it. There was some, I found myself listening to a lot of podcasts and not the questions that I wanted to hear weren't kind of getting asked or getting answered. So I was like, well, maybe that's a time for me to like dive into this and hit it at just another different angle, which is totally fine. It's not that those podcasts are bad. I mean, I feel like there could be, I mean, I love podcasts. There can't be enough hunting podcasts out there and because every one of them is going to be just a little bit different and me I wanted to kind of find those those diamond in the rough kind of guys the guys that you don't really hear much about but they're doing pretty good thing or really cool things you know like last week I had um uh Trevor Petrosky on from Sutton's Bay and he does all running gun setups up in up in you know uh the upper lower peninsula and he's killing good deer doing it man that's something you just don't hear of in Michigan and I got a hold of him, and it went off really well. That episode actually has been my best download episode so far in one day. I'm over 75 downloads in one day, so with just that episode. So it was it was pretty cool to do that. And but those are the kind of guys that I've been looking for, and throwing some gear reviews in, you know, and just talking hunting, you know. Yeah, I listened to that episode, and it just. Uh... <laughs> man, it got me, it just gets your brain fired up, you know, and it, and it's interesting 
what you said, you know, trying to find those guys. And I guess it's once you kind of get entrenched in this, I don't know if it's a community of more hardcore deer hunters, people that are invested in it, like people that do podcasts and television and videos, YouTube channels, all that. But man, there's a whole bunch of guys in Michigan that kill big deer year in, year out. I just had a conversation with a guy uh, this week, actually, the same day I listened to that podcast that you were talking about, I got a phone call from uh, a guy that I met through the Hunting Beast uh, forum. I'm not sure if you're yeah, on there, yep. um, but uh, he's from Michigan, and I, I'm not going to give his name up right now because I don't want anyone <laughs> to steal him <laughs> before I have him on. But I'm telling you right now, this guy's, he's going to, pro- I mean, he he's on track. He's younger than me, so I, I think he's in his early thirties and, and he's on track to kill more P and Y entry bucks than, uh, John Eberhardt. Okay. And he's a monster and, and he just, he's got it figured out. His system's so incredibly different than what we inherently learn growing up to hunt. I think a lot of the Michigan hunting culture, I mean, I don't know where we lost our woodsmanship here in this state, but certainly a ton of people did. I, I think a lot of it revolves around baiting, really. I mean, it's just one of those things that a lot of guys uh, defer to because it it does uh, so heavily increase your percentage of chance of going out and seeing deer that, uh, you know, people rely on that and then in turn they suffer from not doing as much scouting as they should or not actually learning a little more in depth about deer behavior and why they do what they do and you know that could be changing here pretty quick with the onset of a new cwd plan being released by the state it's going to get finalized here pretty soon we're going to know more details but uh there's certainly going to be heavy baiting restrictions in some areas. Uh, baiting is going to be made illegal and there's a great chance that that could happen statewide. And I think it'd be good probably for everybody. You know, I, I like throwing some bait out for deer, especially come late season. And if I'm hunting like the big woods up in Northern Michigan and I've only got, you know, I could drive all the way up there and maybe only have two sets where, you know, I'm in a hundred thousand acres trying to pin down and get on a deer. And I've got, you know, literally four, five hours to try to get it done. Uh, you know, if you can get in there a day early and throw out some shelled corn, it, uh, it's going to just, you know, increase your chances heavily to have some deer come through, especially if you're just trying to fill a, you know, a doe tag, or if you're looking for a year and a half old buck, that's, that's a great way to do it. But then in turn, when you begin to evolve out of that, uh, there's other ways. Baiting is probably the least successful way that you could go about trying to kill an older age class deer. And I think that's a lot of the, you know, a lot of the stigma that this state gets is that we don't have an older age class deer. Well, I think a lot of us haven't been inherently raised uh, to hunt in that manner where you could, you know, kill an older age class deer. For me, anyway, speaking personally, you know, for 
the better part of 20 years, I did everything wrong. I mean, it, you know, I'm amazed looking back now that I've killed as many two and a half year old bucks as I have with some of my silly antics and, you know, going to the store to buy the newest, latest and greatest attractant, this and that, <laughs> and trying to bring deer to me rather than learn, learn what, you know, what deer do and try to get, you know, one step ahead of them, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad you touched on that because that's exactly where I'm at with it. And I'm not saying, and I'm pretty sure you're not saying baiting is a bad thing for, you know, everybody, but like what I'm trying to say too, is that I've been baiting for a little while now and I grew up baiting. So it's like, but, but that I was doing myself a disservice, I believe. And I'm just starting to realize that like, you know, you can shoot deer over bait. It's happened. Like I've killed a three and a half year old over bait here. And well, I mean, he was going to the bait. I killed him before he was getting to the bait. But anyway, the thing is, is like, I lost some of my woodsmanship that my dad instilled in me when I was growing up because I got so locked in on the baiting. Like, oh, I'm just going to throw some beats out here, you know, put a camera on it, get them pinpointed. And that's where I'm going to hunt them. And I feel like I lost the ability to go and scout the right way and stay out of my areas the right way. And that just pressures deer more. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is the more you go into your spot and bait, that's even more pressure that you're putting on your spots. And I know a lot of people understand that, but I think our older generation, and I don't want to single out any generation, but our older generation, because I see it within our deer camp, is like they're happy to be there. But also you get the guys that are like, well, I haven't shot a, a damn buck in 10 years. So, you know, and then they go blow up a, a, a small two and a half year old. And it's like, well, I guess, you know, it's whatever you whatever you want to do with their gun, you know, and it's like, sure, do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, what do you, what are we trying to do here? And I don't know. It's just, it can be frustrating because I don't, I want hunting to be fun for everybody. And I don't want to go around and be like, well, you can't shoot that deer. You can't shoot this deer, even though I want to shoot bigger deer. So it's like, you know, to break it down for you, you know, I grew up hunting 215 acres. We still have it and it's big woods. It's all woods except 65 acres of hayfield. And we got 10 guys that hunt it, 11 guys. But there's only like five or six of us that bow hunt it. But still, if you think about, there's five or six bow hunters on that 215 acres. That's not even in the square mile. You know, a square mile, who knows? I mean, we're in a big section. There could be 10 more guys out there. That's 16 bow hunters per square mile just for bow hunting. And gun season, you get, everybody's out there, you know, opening day. You know, our camp has evolved in the last 10 years as far as you know, eight, 10 years ago, we were still shooting year and a half old deer and on opening day and with a gun or whatever. Now there's no year and a half old deer being killed. There is, you know, it's all the, I call them kind of mid to upper echelon, two and a half year olds. You're getting like the 110, 115 inch deer. Those are the deer that we're targeting more or less killing. And which is good. I'm so happy for that because it's, you can see it growing, but it's taking so long. And I'm not even just saying for our camp, but for the whole state of Michigan, it is taking forever for this to to evolve into 
And I'm not saying I want to shoot four-year-olds right tomorrow. I mean, I do, but it's just not going to happen overnight. And going back to what you were saying with the woodsmanship, like I just feel that people are losing it and they're just reverting back to bait. You know, let's bait and then let's just go hunt it. And, you know, oh, I shot a six-point. I shot my buck this year. It's it's great because a lot of people just want to say they shot their buck this year. And I don't know. It's just frustrating. Yeah, you know what bait's great for? I mean, it has a, definitely a couple benefits. Uh, one, for young hunters, uh, for youth, I think it's great. Uh, you can get kids out. Uh, you're typically, if you're sitting over some bait, you're going to have something going on, right? Whether it's blue jays or squirrels. Heck, even not for little kids, I mean, for myself or anybody it's nice to be able to see you know some blue jays or some squirrels or some turkeys something going on to pass the time or you know a young deer that comes in and is you know working around in the bait and you can just kind of watch their behavior and mannerisms and whatnot but uh you know when it comes to older generation it's it's a lot of just well hey this is what i've always done i don't really know anything differently and I don't want to, I mean, I guess, you know, there's that, that, uh, the old saying, you know, teach an old dog new tricks. I mean, if you're going to relearn essentially how to deer hunt, you're, you're going to have an investment in time. And yes. it also, it takes, you know, arguably way more work, um, to do it in a different manner. If you're going to be mobile hunting, um, you know, hunting public land, covering a lot more ground. It involves a, a lot more time scouting. I mean, you spend more time scouting than you actually do hunting. So to ask somebody that, you know, goes up to a rifle camp for one weekend a year, one week a year to, you know, change the way they do everything, you're definitely going to have, you know, some mixed emotions, some backlash, and some people that are going to go out and do the exact same thing that they did with bait without bait and they're going to say well i'm not seeing any deer this you know this sucks i hate this i don't like hunting in this state but you know and it just escalates it escalates from there so i think it's going to take a long time to change but you just alluded to it it's going to be a little bit of a generational thing i know we've even gone so far in the state as to you know legally make some antler point restrictions and whatnot but i i think as a hunting community we're and I just even outside of our state, I think I heard through QDM last year that, you know, the age class of deer that's being harvested across the country is up. It's trending upward. Mm-hmm. And and it's because of groups like QDM and others that are constantly just pounding you with this good information, facts, and showing you that, yeah, if you if you can have a little bit of patience and you are willing to lay off that young deer, um, other people are doing so as well. And as a group, we can collectively do this. It's just going to take a while. Yeah. Yep. And that's what me being a little impatient too, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm not saying the camp or the, the problem is in our deer camp, but I just kind of see that on an everyday basis, you know, we're killing, decent 
two and a half to three and a half year old bucks. And that's all I can ask for is shooting the three and a halfs. And, you know, I've messed up before and shot two and a halfs and not even messed up. Like I, I targeted those deer for a long time. I'm not going to say I'm a big buck killer. Like I just like going out and hunting and, and trying to find the biggest deer I can find and trying to, you know, chase him and kill him. That's what I love about it. It's the story. I'm a, I'm a storyteller and I love being able to tell that story it's it'll take time and I kind of alluded to it on the last podcast my dad my dad was very fortunate um he hunted you know grew up hunting the same property I did um since the 70s and he's killed some damn nice bucks out there with a gun and with a bow and I've seen his progression you know move from you know shooting the little deer and getting to shooting the bigger deer and he just he loves hunting still he just wants to go out there and he wants to find an old deer he he's like I don't even care what the rack is he's like I want to find something with age like a three and a half a four and a half and last year he finally got his bow back out for the first time in a while just because he's been so damn busy and he hunted a lot and he ended up missing a buck he had this buck targeted and it was an older deer at least three and a half could be four and a half but it didn't really have much for for antlers and you know he ended up missing him and then one of our guys shot him in rifle season but he had so much fun last year and that just makes me happy because you know everything that he's given me over the years and and uh it's he's just like a little kid in a candy store again and he's kind of revived himself he loves bow hunting again and he hadn't done it in a while. Now he's got a recurve and he wants to do that. And I'm like, dad, you have no time to even shoot that, you know? <laughs> and it's like, and he's just trying to practice it and, and get back into the woods. So he's uh, kind of put more, uh, more, I don't know, more drive into me to want to, to get more hunters in, into the, the world too, because we want to, you know, we're losing hunters like crazy right now. And, you know, it's, it's, I want to get more hunters in, and I think you alluded to it on one of your podcasts. We just, I have no time to even <laughs> be able to go out and hunt myself, and I'm trying to find time to go out and scout, and I don't know how I'm going to get more hunters in. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a it's a problem. It's not one that's going to be solved easily. I don't know that it's one that can even be solved. Um, you know, I think about that a lot, like what could be done, and that's the, I think the major problem, you know, everybody talks about access. Um, yeah. If you live in a, you know, an urban area or a, a fringe area where urban transitions into rural, there's going to be a ton of hunting pressure. I mean, yeah. everybody that doesn't own property is looking for the closest spot to go hunt. So if, if you're just going off, a, you know, solely that, then yeah, it does look like access is tough and it's hard to find a spot to hunt, but man, you don't, you don't have to go too far. I mean, you don't even have to travel outside of our state. We have millions of acres of public land here. And a lot of them are just unbelievable, uh, you know, whitetail habitat. Like you're, you're going to be hard pressed to find better deer habitat. And I think people just need to get exposed to it and that's starting to happen maybe through social media but you know one quick thing i was thinking of too before we get too far ahead is uh on the baiting thing too another 
good thing about baiting is that uh, you, you're typically got an animal at a standstill. And a lot of times when guys are putting bait out, you know, they're pacing it off. They know from, hey, from my tree stand to this bait's 15 yards. And when a deer comes into that bait and it settles down and you know that's 15 yards, it's makes a, it puts a lot of, you know, a lot of percentage in your favor that you're going to be able to make a great shot versus when you're not sitting over something like that and you're, you just have deer moving through. And I mean, for myself personally, and I think a lot of people in Michigan know that you know, we're not sitting field edges for the most part. You're typically hunting in some thicker stuff and it can be pretty darn hard to get a shot on a deer. When a deer does come through, you might only have a couple seconds to make a decision, judge yardage, get the right angle. I mean, there's just so many factors. So, yeah. I, you know, I understand in that manner too, why baiting is, a, you know, a, a, an appeal to a lot of people, myself included, uh, like I said, you know, if I only have one or two days to fill a deer tag, boy, that's a pretty, pretty efficient way to do it. But, you know, like where, where it sets you back is when you want to try to move forward and hunt older deer, you, you've got to erase all of that essentially and do it in a completely different manner. Yeah, you nailed it right there. Right what you just said was a nail right on the head. It's and that's what I'm trying to learn again. I mean, I'm 31 years old now and I'm trying to learn like I love listening to your podcast and Kenyans and stuff like that when they're talking to guys such mm-hmm. as Dan and Fault and I'm trying to find the bedding areas now on my properties and I'm trying to really hone in on those and hunt them and figure out how to hunt them. I have a huge disconnect right now because I listen to all of Infault's stuff and it's like I'm still trying to pinpoint what those bedding areas look like and where to hunt them and how to hunt them because he makes it sound like it's you know so damn easy and it is to him because he's been doing it forever but it's I'm trying to paint that picture in my scenario so that's where I'm trying to do it in it in it and it sucks because I feel like I've lost so many years not like trying to learn that, you know, and I think how you were talking about the woodsmanship again, I think that's where a lot of guys fall is kind of where I'm at right now. I'm trying to learn again, learn over like how to get these older deer in front of me. They exist. I mean, they exist here in Michigan. They do. And it's just trying to find them and zero in on them and, and get an arrow in them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. there's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, I would recommend for anybody that, you know, wants to hunt older age class deer in a pressured state, be it New York, PA, Michigan, parts of Wisconsin get a lot of pressure. I know the East Coast states get a lot of pressure and have smaller woodlots that the, the hunting beast tactics are definitely the place to start. Um, the forum, the hunting is basically where every guy that is entrenched in hunting older age class deer, that is, there's a couple ways you can do it, right? You can, you can learn deer mannerisms and behavior and you can play the game with them. Or, I mean, you can invest in property, you can manipulate property and make some incredible habitat 
um, and do some, you know, essentially deer landscaping and, and you can do it that way, but that's not available to everybody. And I think it's becoming more, less and less available to, you know, the younger generation is not a ton of people have the extra funds to go invest in, in property. So what's left, you know, we have a more public land here in this state than any state east of the Mississippi. Uh, I, I've heard the number and you got to fact check it. Uh, I've had a hard time actually confirming this, but I've heard 7.5 million acres between, you know, the upper and lower peninsula. And it's like, man, where do you even start? When I started branching out hunting on all that stuff, I'm looking at all this public land and I would drive there for a day and I'd walk around. I'd be like, well, geez, I didn't even cover, you know, one, one thousandth of a percent of just this parcel like how am i ever going to figure this stuff out and the the hunting beast forum is definitely the place to where all those guys that choose to hunt in that manner come together and they have in-depth conversations about all that and dan in fault the you know the founder the the godfather of the the hunting beast <laughs> the hunting beast himself right is a amazing uh, teacher and he's, you know, a lot of guys that have the, the wealth of information that he has are pretty secretive and pretty reserved about giving it up. And Dan's the exact opposite. He wants to share it with, with everybody. He enjoys the heck out of seeing people grow. And so you can get on there and learn. And then I would advise anybody, Dan's in Wisconsin, and he, he travels around a little bit and does them. But every year he does multiple scouting workshops where you can go spend a day with him in the woods. He does marsh ones, swamp ones, hill country ones, farm ones. They're typically done like after the first of the year um, when there's snow on the ground all the way up until like spring green up. He's doing these workshops. And if you can get on that forum and you can see when one of those workshops coming up and if you and a buddy are willing to drive in a truck, go spend a day with that guy because it'll just change the way you see and do everything. It's one thing to read it online and read it over and over again. But once you're physically standing there in the woods and you can look around at the landscape and, you know, ask questions, man, does it all start to come together? And then you start spending your own time applying what you've learned and it's going to take a while, but you, your brain, it's just going to rewrite everything across your brain about how you approach the woods, I mean, from the second you step out of your truck, from the way you prep your gear, it's been an unbelievable, you know, uh, valuable tool to me. And that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. And I, I see you guys, you know, I follow you guys, so I see you guys going over to the workshops. That's what it's going to take for me because I'm the type that I have to see it. You know, I have to see it and kind of and, and digest it that way, whether sure. than read it, you know what I mean, and that might be something I need to do is take a take a drive over there, and I've got some family in Wisconsin as well, so I could hit two birds with one stone and and kind of do that, and that might be what it takes. But that that's a good good spot to to transition here to you know big woods hunting. I want to talk about big woods hunting because you've been doing that. I grew up on a on a big woods hunting, and I've got a good scenario that we can talk about as well here down the line but your big woods hunting i mean you're doing mobile setups as well my biggest thing and my question to you is when you're going into these big areas 
what the hell are you looking for? <laughs> like what, what is sticking out to you saying, gosh, I got to get a stand in here. Like what's the number one thing when you walk into a piece that let's say you have never even been on, you know, cause we're talking about all the public land and everything you've never been on. What are you looking for that, that really sticks out to you? Well, it's two things before I drive there, I'm spending a fair amount of time online looking at maps. I use both Google Earth and I use Onyx, um, both for different reasons, usually side by side. Like literally as I'm talking to you right now, I'm sitting here at my desk. I have my computer up with Google Earth images up. And right next to that, I have a tablet opened up with Onyx. And I'm, I'm looking at both of those together. Onyx is great because it'll show you property boundaries, uh, both private and public. And then Google Earth, a lot of times, will have better satellite imaging, so you can really zoom in and get an idea of what you're looking at. So that's the first thing I'm doing is I'm looking for, uh, like, macro topography and landscape. A lot of what I like to hunt is um, swamp, swamp edge, marsh edge. Typically in our state, um, when deer get pressured, those are the thickest areas and that's the spots that deer are going to go to feel safe. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to walk out into a big chunk of timber and you can see, you can stand there and you can see 75 to hundred yards through the timber, that is like a desert for a whitetail. One, there's, <laughs> there's no food for them down low you know if all your foliage is up in a canopy and everything's shaded out it's beautiful to look at you can walk in there and a lot of times you're going to see a lot of scrapes and rubs because deer do like traveling through those areas at night and that's when they do a lot of that but it can really throw you through a loop because you get set up in one of those areas you're not seeing any deer you're wondering why well nothing makes a deer more nervous than being able to see that distance they typically like spots where you know they can't see more than 15 20 yards a lot of cases so you're going to find that in a lot of your transitional areas and then going down into you know into swamps and marshes and so what i'm usually looking for is those swamps and marshes or maybe something that the state came in and cut you know a few years back that's like new regenerative growth that's real thick and nasty um that provides cover for deer that provides food for deer they love that woody browse i mean if we're especially if we're going to talk big woods here i mean that's that's your food plot that's your bait pile that's your everything is yep. low successional growth um obviously acorns in the fall play a role but that's a very short you know you're talking weeks of time so you know you can have a plan to hunt some acorns i think the beginning of the season but you can't wrap your whole season around that, but low successional growth in our state, fortunately, has a great plan and does a great job of select timber harvest. Uh, you know, especially in northern Michigan, the state forests that I hunt every year, the state's in there doing different cuts. And, uh, you know, it's all done in the name of a science. You know, when I was younger and I'd come across those, I'd be like, oh, man, it sucks. They cut all these woods down. And now I'm like, oh, wow, awesome. Here's a. Yep. And a lot of times you'll find these big cuts, you know, 
right off the edge of a big swamp or whatever. And you're just thinking, oh man, this is going to be money. I'm going to throw a camera up on the backside of this and see what's coming in here at night. And so a lot of times that's how I'm approaching it. I'm looking for maybe those cuts. Um, and from there, I'm like sitting down and looking at a map and thinking, all right, from here, where are the deer bedding? Um, they don't want to travel any farther than they have to, to eat. So typically, unless they're pressured and they have to move otherwise, the closest point, you know, like I said, is going to be that transition line from where maybe hardwoods transitions into a, a swamp or some type of, you know, tag alder thicket. Mm-hmm. And the deer will typically, from what I've found in the last couple of years, scouting in this manner is that if you were to walk 10, 15, 20 yards inside that swamp, which is typically where you don't want to walk, you, I always, and I think a lot of people would, you walk just outside of the swamp, right? Because the swamp's nasty to walk through. It's a right. bunch of work. So I used to just walk the transition line on the other side well if you flip-flop that and you go inside that swamp yes it's nasty but that's where a lot of your information lies as to what these deer are doing and you're going to start finding you know beds whether it's a a little elevated bump of ground typically in the swamps uh, i hunt a lot of cedar swamps so that's what it it usually is it might be just one big mature tree that has a root structure underneath of there where dirt over the you know over years and years has has piled up and you'll find beds there and and what those bucks particularly love to do is walk 10 15 yards inside that swamp to one of those little high points and then turn right around 180 degrees and watch their back trail coming in because coyotes will follow their scent around too and whatnot and a little bit of it does depend on what the wind's doing as as well but a lot of times in the swamps and marshes the wind is really not a factor in how they bed and that's something that i had to learn like in hill country and in open woods wind is a huge factor on how deer bed they want the wind coming over their back and typically something to their back to protect them from something essentially just jumping right on top of them be it just a down tree um a barrier of dirt a deadfall whatever they like that to their back and then they like to watch you know where they walked in typically a little bit of an open area where they have a uh where I guess where they have, uh, you know, better visibility than anything that would be trying to sneak in on them. But mm-hmm. in the, in the swamps, the wind does crazy stuff. And I think they're more relying on just cover and topography more than wind direction. And, uh, so I, you know, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but for me, I'm typically trying to get right on that edge and find where deer are moving in and out of there. Maybe some historical signposts, like some old rubs that have just been, you can tell for years, they've been just getting hit and hit and hit. And a lot of times those, I found those to be on, you know, major arteries going in and out of these swamps where deer are coming out at night and going 
you know, into the bigger woods or whatever and doing their social stuff all at night. But you, you got a lot of, a lot of nocturnal behavior here in Michigan. Some people argue that deer won't really go nocturnal, but I'll argue that, uh, you know, a, once a buck here in Michigan gets to be three, especially four or five, man, they can go completely nocturnal. Yep. And the, and, and the thing with the nocturnalness is our pressure, I believe is what makes them nocturnal. Um, cause you know, it, we're so pressured like you, you know, we both had talked about earlier and I've seen it on our farm, you know, a deer all through early October and everything. He's, he's daylight, daylight, and then he just vanishes and he's all after dark the whole rest of the year, all your camera pictures and everything are, are dark. And it's like, well, what the hell, how'd that happen? You know? And you're kind of, I don't know if I've been naive to the fact that I'm like, well, it can't be the pressure I'm coming in on the best winds and I'm so quiet, but for, he sees me, he, he, he is, he knows what I'm doing, you know? And, and in those swamps that you were talking about it, there's so many predators in there that get deer on edge as well with the coyotes and, you know, up where you're at, but well, where you hunt, I mean, there's a lot of bears up there and the bears are starting to move even closer down or farther down here in the, in the Southern Michigan. And so, I mean, who knows what could, could make them go nocturnal, but I feel like it's more pressure based in my eyes, you know? Sure. Yeah. Here's another thing too, that I'm thinking a big thing that changed a lot for me is, uh, slowing down, giving yourself time. Um, I always used to be in a rush to get to my, get to my tree, uh, get out there in the morning, hurry up. Typically, you know, that includes making a fair amount of noise. And one thing that I really started to notice is how often, um, deer, I mean, deer, they're already in the woods. You're going into the woods where they already are. So in a lot of cases, they're watching you, you know, they're watching you come in and out and they're hearing you. And that might be a big part of the reason why guys are going out and not seeing anything is you almost have to play it like you're already deer you know deer are there and that they're i always used to be under the impression hey i go and get set up and then the deer move in right exactly yeah it's not the case they're already there um deer especially if we're going to talk three and a half year old buck or older they don't move in daylight hours outside of this parameter that they've already deemed to be safe while they're bedded for the day they are not just going to get up and go you know exploring that that for them is is certain death but they do know because if they've been sitting in a spot all day they've been able to watch hear smell they know within you know 75 to 100 yards of them that nothing nothing's changed all day and they're pretty comfortable maybe in the last hour of light getting up and moving around within that and you know a lot of times that's the distance that you're how close you're trying to get and get set up and you know mobile hunting allows you to do that that's a whole nother thing that i know we're going to get into but uh that changed a lot for me when i started just really like slowing down especially when i get to where you know i think those deer are like i said if i'm hunting the edge of a swamp and i think the deer are bedded 15 yards inside the swamp 
you got to go slow and you got to be quiet and uh, getting set up. It, uh, it all, you know, provides its own set of challenges. And like I said, it's almost a completely different topic, but getting on, getting on top of the deer versus this mentality of going and getting set up and, you know, you're on a travel corridor and deer are going right. to, you know, you got to get into their house. You got to get into their comfort zone. You got to fool their senses so that you're in an area that they deem to be, be safe. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And that, I, that makes another question that I just thought of. So when you're going, cause I'm, I'm picturing uh, a swamp on my piece of ground, we've got a huge, um, cedar swamp and about 15 years ago, on our side of the property, the the our timber got logged off. So now it's all popple shoots and new growth, you know. And, you know, year five or six, it was like a, a deer heaven. It was probably 15 years ago I actually got logged off because now the popples are getting to the point where they probably, I mean, it's not as thick in there anymore. But it's so hard to hunt because the deer see you coming through that timber because I, I can't get through it on the other side because that's the neighbors. So the deer, you know, if they're in that swamp, they, I mean, they see you coming the whole way, basically. And I'm like, how the hell am I going to hunt this? And it's hard to hunt in the, in, the, in the morning because it's hard to be quiet going through the dark, you know, and I don't really like using a headlamp. But what is your tactic for... You know, once you find these veins, if you will, or, or runways that are coming out of this swamp, where where are you setting your stand up? Are you are you on the edge, you know, where the where the timber meets the cedar swamp, or are you sitting off that a little ways? I mean, w- typically, where are you trying to put your stand? So that's kind of where I am, honestly, right now in this whole, you know, in this relearning process. Is I can, for the most part, now locate the deer sign locate the deer but it's how do you get you know that is like the the polishing act right of getting getting your stand set up quietly and getting it in the right spot i mean you know we're talking bow hunting where you know most guys have a range of 25 30 yards is what they're really comfortable with some guys inside that so you you really got to pick the right you know the right tree and i'm still learning but obviously for the most part um paying close attention to wind direction i in the spring you know i'm uh, when i'm doing my scouting i'm climbing some of these trees basically you know i say prepping i'm not really doing much prep work aside from actually climbing up the tree and figuring out if I need to be sitting at 12 foot, 18 foot, 22 foot so that I have the visibility that I need. Because when I go in there in the dark and set up, the last thing I want is for the sun to come up and for me to see, oh, wow, this is an awesome spot. However, I can't shoot more than 10 yards. I don't have any lanes. I don't have any clear visibility. So in the springtime now when I'm scouting, Um, I'm taking sticks with me and getting right up in the tree and I won't, you know, revisit that spot until 
I plan on hunting it and I'll have, you know, like right now this year, when I go up North, I probably have two dozen spots marked and pinned on my maps and it'll just depend on what the wind's doing. I mean, you know, you got to play the game. If you're going up for a one weekend hunt, you're going to kind of be, you know, there's a guy like John Eberhardt who has a completely different method uh, who goes through unbelievable lengths of effort to beat the wind. And, and he's, he's, uh, he's been extremely efficient at doing so, but his system is a whole completely different thing. And I, I don't have the time really to be invested in, in that maybe at some point in time I will, but for now I'm just a slave to what the wind's doing. And so, you know, I'm looking at the wind when I get into those areas also, um, I'm verifying that when the whole time, you know, I always used to use the, uh, you know, the powders, talcum powder or yeah. whatever it be to check the wind. And now I do, uh, anybody that is on the hunting beast forum will know it's a big thing that all the guys use is uh, milkweed, the milkweed pods that you can find right in the ditch. I don't know if that's anything you've personally played around with, but you can drop those, those, uh, little pieces of milkweed and in some instances those things are like lighter than air and they will just float around and you might watch your wind go back 20 yards and then turn and come back and go straight out in front of you it's it's pretty crazy what wind does when you really start paying attention to it but that's a that's a huge factor i used to just look at the weather channel and say oh northwest wind i can go sit here and but now that i'm paying attention to that a lot of times I'll know what a Northwest wind is going to do on this swamp edge. Temperature plays a, a part in that too. There's a, a huge thing to learn about thermals, especially when you're hunting alongside a, a swamp, when you're having air temperatures that are heating and cooling and how the, how the air uh, draws and pushes in and out of the swamp. So that is like a, it's like a whole class in itself to learn that, but I'm paying attention to wind. I'm using milkweed for the most part when I'm going in, when I'm getting set up and I, I'm monitoring that. And then I'm just trying to pick a, you know, a, a, an established travel corridor or something with a topography that I know is going to funnel, you know, funnel deer. If, if it's a, if they're coming out into elevation, a lot of times, you know, you're looking for that military crest, like the one third down the hill, yep. essentially from the top yep. deer love to, to move that. Um, it's going to be a whole, like I said, that's kind of where I'm getting to at this point this year, I can find these spots pretty good and get on deer, but it's, that pinpoint that last strategic move to put you within bow range and and i gun hunt too and for me you know in the last couple of years i've had a lot of success gun hunting because i'm still not right there where i can get right in the exact perfect spot but i can get myself you know to where now with a you know shotgun i've got 60 70 yards of coverage and that's worked out in two circumstances for me last year, I put myself in a position to be able to take two, you know, pretty nice bucks last year doing the same, 
things that we're talking about here, but with a gun, it just kind of stretches you out uh, a little bit. So that's what I've been kind of reading, I guess. in with Dan Infault is like he's getting right on top of these buck beds, like so close and like forty yards and in. And I'm like, how the heck is he doing that? Like he's just a he's just an animal, you know. And he's not even. I mean, he the way I've kind of been reading and listening and. And watching his stuff, he does it even on private land too, because he does do some private land hunting as well, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he does uh, a little bit, not a ton, but uh, yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff that he's hunting is so thick that uh, you know the deer where they're bedded, they can't see more than ten yards. So seventy yards seems like co- quite a long distance when you're actually like standing in those spots and you're seeing it firsthand what he's talking about when you hear somebody say oh yeah i, I got within 50 yards of a bedded buck and got set up a lot of people are skeptical and say well how is that possible but when you're when you're physically standing there with him and he shows you you're like all right well that makes sense because yeah, it's so thick in here that provided that you're quiet the deer can't really you know see you and a lot of times he's only getting up in a tree sometimes six eight ten feet because he don't want to doesn't want to climb 20 foot up uh and get skyline where deer could could see him so he's just relying on the fact that he's quiet enough to get in there get set up and you know where the deer are going to be getting up out of their beds and it's typically right at you know last shooting light when the deer have even moved that 50 yards 70 yards to him where he'll have an opportunity to you know close that distance but here in michigan i think it's even more amplified because a lot of these deer like i got on a couple nice bucks uh two years back they don't even stand up out of their beds until 15 minutes after dark i'll stay in my stand and typically like listen and monitor all the traffic of the hunters that are going in out of the woods you know you can hear the car doors opening and closing and people starting to drive up and down the roads and a lot of times, once that traffic clears, you'll hear a deer stand up, you know, that's been bedded in a couple circumstances last year, deer that were bedded by me all afternoon, you know, within 70 yards, they were there the whole time. They just aren't going to move until they're confident that everybody is, you know, out of the woods. And, you know, before I forget about mentioning this, I think one of the biggest things that's helped me is, uh, a lot of times going hunting, just having the mentality of going hunting when you think other people aren't, be it weather conditions, like it's raining and nasty, uh, snow, later in the season when everybody's spirits kind of dwindle and the pressure. I mean, you got the opening week of firearm and then after that, I don't know what the percentage of, of people that don't hunt anymore is, but it's it's huge. And I think the deer recognize that too. So anytime that you can be in the woods where you typically think no one else is, I think the deer realize that too. And in a lot of cases, uh, rain, wind, nasty weather is when I see a lot of deer. And then also if you have the ability to take a weekday off, you know, I know it's tough for a lot of people, but, um, you know, if you could take a Tuesday off or a Wednesday off when you know most guys are at work, 
you can get into the woods an hour before daylight and get quiet and get set up in some of these bedding areas, you're going to see something completely different than what you would if you're going to go in on a Saturday morning at the same time as everybody else and make a bunch of noise. Um, that's been a, you know, an eye opener for me as well. Yeah. So, so scenario here, and I'm asking a little advice from you because you're, you've been doing this mobile and, and public land hunting. So, a little background on like what I think about public land and it's, you know, I've hunted private my whole life and it's been good private. So it's like, well, I've never had to, you know, hunt public and that, you, you know, you, you kind of feel like you grew, I grew up like thinking like public is for people that don't have private land so they can go and hunt it. So I have got private, I don't need to hunt it, so on and so forth. But now it's like, it's a good spot or a good place to go and not burn out your private land spots. Or you might even come into a honey hole where it's like, you know, it's, it could be really good. So my question to you is, you know, this year I would like to try. And even if it's one or two public land sets, even like close to work, you know, I, I, I work in Midland. I live in the Mount Pleasant area. So I drive like 40 minutes. So if I get out of work and I can jump over there, some, there's some public land over there question for you is like it's intimidating when you pull into a private or public land you know what should I be looking for as far as like you know you've got so much property and it's like do you go right off the beaten path or you know it's it's so like where do you start like you said like there's so many thousands of acres you know, do you just go and 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 sit on the ed- on one of these edges and then just kind of observe and then adjust from there? I mean, that does take a lot of time, you know, because you you got to have some time invested in that. But you know, to maximize your opportunities, what should a guy like me be doing to 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 set myself up the best way I can for you know not first time in, but like first season basically on public land? Yeah, no, and I'll say. I'm not spending time in the woods if I'm not like thinking my, my thought process when I'm hunting is that I'm hunting. Like I know guys talk a ton about like, uh, you know, their, their sits where they're just out there kind of monitoring deer and making assessments and viewing and, you know, going to make this, when I go, it's to hunt. I have limited time. So I'm never going out there with the thought process that tonight I'm just going to go out here and, and scout, um, you know, or, or maybe a deer will come by. I'm going in to hunt. And what I'm typically, my mindset going in is, like you said, pulling into that parking lot, walking down that trailhead. That right there is without question what 99% of the guys are going to do. And I'm going to do the opposite of that. So a lot of times I'll park at the parking lot and maybe that's your only parking option. So, okay, that's what we're going to do, but I'm not even going to walk down that trailhead. I'm going to go walk back out to the street and I'm going to walk down the road a half mile or a quarter mile and I'm going in the woods there. And I'm not just doing this blindly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this based on, you know, things I've seen on a map, the spots I want to go, but I, I am not following that trailhead that most of the guys are unless it's to get to a spot where I need to cut in a direction to get far away from, you know, most of that activity. But typically the best way to get away from that activity is to do exactly what the other guys aren't doing. And I, I feel like the deer get 
they get pretty smart about knowing, you know, where people are coming in and out, where people are going to be. So, and I don't want people to know where I am. A lot of times, like, you know, even up north, there uh, there won't be a parking lot. You're just you're just pulled over on the you know off the side of the road. I typically don't park my truck where I'm going to walk in. I'll I'll park my truck and then I'll walk, you know, whether it's an eighth of a mile one way or the other up or down the street before I go in because I just don't like people having any idea of where I'm going. Mm-hmm. And or even if it's as simple as parking on the other side of the street, you know, it's it's crazy how guys will make sure they park on the side of the street that they're hunting on. Cause they don't want to have to go through that for what to cross the road. Yeah. Um, you know, you just, I typically you see a truck and it's pulled over on that side of the road. You think, Oh, the guy went in there to hunt, you know, and it's funny how guys will look at me and be like, well, I saw you come over from across the street. You know, what were you doing over there? And it's like, well, don't know you and I'm not really willing to tell you <laughs> why I'm doing that. But yeah, you, you just, you got to find things on the map that a lot of guys, what they'll do, my, my buddy Ryan's pretty good about it. He'll take a, like a, a, a protractor a compass and he'll, he'll, he'll draw a circle, a radius on, he'll take the parking lots and he'll make them the center of the circle. And then he'll draw a circle of like a half mile or three quarters, or in some cases, even a mile. And any of that stuff that falls with inside that circle, he's not touching that. That stuff is completely useless. There's no reason to be there. That's where most, that's where you're going to find your highest density of hunters. So you eliminate that real quick. And then outside of that, you look at what's available. And then, like I said, you focus on edge and topography, um, where a swamp's connecting to hardwoods or new growth is connecting to old growth and you start pinpointing those areas and you start going to those and you know you got to hunt the deer but uh, here in michigan also you got to hunt the hunters you gotta see what they're doing and you know understand that you can't do that same thing and work around them and you got to understand that in a lot of instances the deer are much smarter than what those guys are giving them credit for and they've already adjusted their their strategies around that so you got to play that next level of movement around what those deer are going to do to move around those people if that makes sense yeah it definitely does and you know the protractor idea that that's a really good idea you know um has he been pretty successful doing that uh, they started traveling out of state to hunt last year and they went to some pretty high pressured spots and, you know, I think on their first hunting trip, um, they all had, you know, uh, deer that would be, you know, probably around over, you know, I guess it's hard to judge a deer on the hoof, but you know, right. from what they told me, you know, 130, 140, 150 inch deer, um, where, just in one weekend and applying all those strategies that, you know, they were pretty successful in inciting older age class deer. So, you know, it's all, we're all still new at this and we're still, you know, me and my close group of hunting friends are obviously, uh, you know, still like trying to build and I don't want to say perfect cause you'll never perfect, but get, get these methods to a point where 
you're really confident that you're going in and doing this and that it's going to work. But yeah, it's, it's definitely increased our sightings as a group collectively of bigger deer. Yeah. And and that's, that's those little, little ideas and little hacks, if you will, those are, that's, that's really cool. I never would have thought about that, you know, just a good way to eliminate some spots and, and, uh, trying to get into a spot where, you know, you think you can be successful, even like, you know, where you say, you know, I park on the road or in the parking lot, but then I, I walk a ways before I dive down into the woods. I mean, that's, that's a good, good hack there. And I'm sure other people do it, but I'm going to guess like a lot of the people probably don't, you know, they're going to park there. And like you said, they're going to go down the trailhead and they're not going to probably get far off the beaten path and, and set up and that's where they're going to hunt. So, yeah, I'll, you know, I never hunt where my truck is. Um, like I said, I'll, I'll hike up and down the road, uh, you know, up to half mile or three quarters of a mile of where I actually do want to go in and out. And when I hear cars coming, I, I step off, I step off the road and into the woods and don't move and let them drive by. Um, I just don't like to tip people off to like, Hey, why is that guy going there? You know, because right. I'll, I mark these spots on my GPS, but I'm typically putting one or two or three or four of the uh, reflective trail tacks in the tree that I actually want to hunt because, you know, when you go in there in the dark and you've got a, you know, a, a GPS pin, it, it will put you basically right on the spot. But man, if it's, if it's dark and you're trying to figure out exactly what tree you want to sit up in, typically what I'm doing is in the spring when I get to those spots. And like I said, I'm taking sticks with me when I'm scouting and I'm getting up in that tree and make sure and I have good line of sight and know what, you know, how, how high I need to be when I get in there in the dark and get set up, I'm putting two or three tacks in that tree. So when I get within that, you know, 50 yards, 40 yards of that tree, I can see that reflector and I know, Oh, there's my tree. You know, I know I, I got to get up in that tree at this elevation and be looking in this direction so that there's no i don't want a wasted sit i don't want the sun to come up and have invested all this time and it get light out and for me to have something that's not right be it a big limb in my shooting lane or whatever i want all that eliminated i just i've had too many of those now where that's you know good for me and you know those tacks are always they're a they're double-edged sword, right? They get you to where you need to be, but they also tip other people off too. If somebody's right. hunting in this area and whatnot, uh, typically I like my spots to, if somebody was going to walk through, they'd have zero evidence that, you know, anybody's been, anybody's been hunting here. And yeah, another thing is too, is uh, the timing uh, on public land. I I really think that's huge. Uh, John Eberhardt talks about it a lot about getting in, in the mornings, like an hour being set up and quiet 90 minutes to an hour with no exception before even the crack of daylight before you can even start to see. So, you know, depending on how far you're going, uh, how long it takes you to get your stand set up, you're really getting up early in the morning. But what happens is if you're getting into these bedding areas before the deer are coming back to bed, you might, if you get in there an hour or 90 minutes before sunup, you might just be 
these deer back in there because a lot of cases they're coming in there at that around that same time or they're at at nothing else 30 to 15 minutes before daylight is when they're coming back into the bedding areas which is exactly what everyone else in the woods is doing so now if i'm taking things seriously and i'm doing my due diligence i'm sitting at least an hour before daylight and i'm watching headlamps going in and out of the woods i'm hearing car doors open and close and in a lot of circumstances then i hear footsteps of a deer you know that got bumped from that area coming to where i am and that deer may or may not bed down right within but a lot of times now you know the sun will come up and the sun will be up for an hour or two it might even be 10 o'clock in the morning and boom a deer will stand up 40 yards from me that's been bedded there all morning that i haven't even seen because i beat it back into that area and the other part of that is too is staying later you know there will be a whole slew of hunters that are going to hunt till 9 30 10 o'clock and then they're going to leave the woods and then there's going to be a whole nother group of hunters that are going to hunt till lunchtime and then they're going to leave and go back in the woods and the deer hear that they monitor that and i i truly think that they consciously know or think they know hey everyone's gone now i can stand up and do a little bit of my business whether that's go check some doe travel corridors get a bite to eat uh sniff around a little bit to see what deer have been you know other deer have been in their bedding area or in their area you know they typically don't just lay there all day they will get up and do a little bit of moving around and i really think that they're monitoring with their ears and eyes when you know for the most part they're confident and comfortable that hey everybody's gone now and I see a lot of deer from like 10, 10 to 1, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. I see a lot of deer. And uh, in the evenings, too, um, you know, getting in there an hour before everybody else does. If you know everybody else is going to be going and sitting at 4 o'clock, try to get out there at 2.30 and get get set up because people are going to bump deer around when they go in and out of the woods. It's, it's pretty unavoidable and you want to be in the spots where the deer are going to go to when those people bed them or when they bump them. Yeah. And that's all great information. I mean, that's just the things like, you know, you're talking about the extra things, you know, it's, you think about it and it's like, well, I don't want to walk across the road, even though you, (laughs) it's like 10 feet to walk across the road, like stuff like that. Like, people just don't want to do but if you do the little extra things like you said getting in early staying a little later like that's going to pay dividends i believe in the long run and that might be the difference you need to killing that buck that you you know that you want you know so you, like you said you're not only hunting the deer but you're essentially hunting the people as well and you're using the people to your benefit you're trying to anyway yeah and if you're willing to pass up a little younger deer one thing i've really noticed in the last couple of years is, you know, my, um, my impression always was that during the fall, you know, especially when the bucks are rutting, they don't want anything to do with one another. They're all in their separate areas. And if they were to come across each other, they're fighting and not, you know, I, I haven't found that to be the case at all here in our state. There's just not enough mature deer 
where it's a, a major issue. The mature deer in the area knows that he's going to breed the does. There's not this competitive fighting all the time. And, and for that manner, uh, typically I found that a lot of bucks are still somewhat hanging in bachelor groups all through the fall. You know, as I've been able to get a little older and pass on deer that I wouldn't have passed, it's amazing to me now how many times I'll have like a year and a half old six point come through or, you know, a basket rack eight. And then what do you know, you know, five minutes later down the same trail comes, you know, a, a bigger buck, a two and a half year old or even a, you know, three and a half year old. And this has happened to me in a couple instances now. And because these bedding areas, the deer are looking for such, like such specific areas that a lot of times you're going to have, a, you know, you're not just going to have one deer in there. You're going to have multiple deer bedded, you know, within proximity together. I, I've had, I've had instances where I've had, you know, right in November, two bucks come in together, bed down. And then within 15 minutes later, another buck come in, walk over to those other bucks, push them up out of their beds, kind of do just a little bit of light sparring to just say, hey, this is my spot, get up. And those deer just stand up and move 20 yards and lay back down. And the bigger deer lay down in the bed that that deer was laying down. They share these areas. And, you know, socially they know who's who or they'll sort it out pretty quickly but they're all kind of still hanging i think in the in the same area so i guess what i'm getting at is if you have a young deer like stand up out of a bed or milling around in an area don't just think that it's the rut and there's not gonna be any other bucks you know around because this deer this buck is here man if you got a young buck in a you know in a big woods area you're not sitting over bait there's a lot of circumstances where there's probably other bucks i mean right right on top of you and it's uh having the patience to you know not shoot that that younger deer or even if it's a pretty appealing two and a half year old you just you just don't know what's coming coming behind them and i've even thought in some circumstances that those bigger deer are smart and they'll let those little deer walk ahead of them just as like a sentry just sending them out there saying all right man you go first you know what i mean yeah and that's like you said that's kind of hard to to process because you think like you know i have a buddy last year he had like a pack of six coyotes run by him and it wasn't five minutes later this like 130 140 inch deer walks right into him and all of a sudden the coyotes came out of nowhere and surrounded this deer and he ended up shooting the deer with coyotes basically on his rear end really and yeah and it's like those things you just don't think of like oh a coyote just walked through well shit my my hunt's blown no it's it's not you know it's it, 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 it might be but these deer live within these coyotes too and they they like you were talking sociably, like I feel like there might be some social, uh, maybe not social connection with coyotes and deer or even just predators, but it's, it's even hard for me to like sit there and be like, well, my hunt's not blown. Or if you have like just a canine dog, like 
uh, what was that, 2012, I had two house dogs run four does underneath my tree, like just barking like crazy, and they were running all around me all night. And next thing you know, as I'm hearing these dogs in the distance, this buck comes out of nowhere, and I ended up shooting him, and I hit him a little high, I hit a branch, I hit him high, whatever. Those deer, those dogs turned around and got on my deer's trail and ran him like got like as far as I could even hear the dogs and I end up losing the deer because these dogs ran them but anyway what I'm getting at is like even though there was house dogs around me I still had an opportunity at a deer and you just like I think that night it was just one of those things it's like well where what else would I be doing it's prime time it's the rut I just need to sit here and exactly what I was kind of telling myself that happened you know like this buck came in and I got an opportunity yeah, getting into coyotes and deer is like a whole another two hour, <laughs> whole another two hour podcast. Because uh, yeah, I hunt in quite a few areas that have uh, moderately heavy concentrations of uh, coyotes, and I've watched a lot of coyote deer interaction. And I have a very different opinion um, about coyotes than you know probably ninety nine percent of the guys are gonna talk to you but like i said we get started on that we'll be on the phone for another two hours so that's another conversation for another day and maybe we'll get into it a little bit i know we talked uh here in the next couple of weeks that you're gonna come over and we're gonna do a podcast on my uh on my podcast and that'll be an opportunity for us to maybe cover some of that or i'll come back on your show and we'll do it at a later time but yeah that's a yeah big in-depth conversation that a lot of people have a lot of opinions about and i feel like a lot of people's opinions are not based on any facts or science just on arm armchair quarterback and hearsay so right and that's i i know very i I hunt coyotes in the winter i don't know a lot about like i said i was kind of throwing a stab out there i don't know how the deer interact with coyotes you know I, i know they're a predator predator them but i other than that i don't know much so that'd be great to talk about and I know we're kind of hitting your time here. You got to head off to work on a Saturday, which that sucks, man. I I feel bad for you on that. That's okay. (laughs) I know you wanted to maybe cover a couple more things. Uh, I know you specifically mentioned earlier about, you know, maybe talking about some, some gear, some layering. So, you know, before we wrap up, if you want to dive into that stuff, we could kind of, you know, close out on that. Okay. Well, I guess let's talk about your bow build right now. Um, I know that you're still in the process of doing it, but break down, you know, this new Parker bow you got, cause I'm really interested in it and kind of what your plan is with this new bow. Well, um, I guess the biggest focus of it is, uh, I didn't need a new bow, but you know, I did notice last year that mine is beginning to, I could probably still hunt another 10 years with my current compound but it's beginning to deteriorate and it's 10 years old. I've hunted 10 seasons with it and I've hunted 10 seasons hard with it. I shot a lot of deer with it. I've shot tens of thousands of arrows through it. It was just time to start putting a plan together to get something, you know, something else put together. And the flip of that too, is a lot of times I'm so invested now that if I'm driving up North for a week to go deer hunting, if something was to happen to my bow, man, I'm dead in the water. So I thought, man, I should really have an extra bow. It's like, well, who has money to have an extra bow 
sitting around and, and I know a lot of guys do so, but I never have. So I started looking at what the options were to, you know, build a new compound and gosh, man, you, by the time you buy a bow, you buy a dozen arrows, a sight, a rest, stabilization, everything goes, that goes into it. Um, you know, if you have to pay a bow tech to have all this done, I mean, you could almost effortlessly be a couple thousand dollars into that. And for me, that wasn't, um, realistic. I did not have the money laying around to do that. So I found a bow. I was lucky enough to be a guest on someone else's podcast, the guys over at bow hunter planet. And we had interviewed the, uh, I guess, I don't know exactly what his uh, title is, but Brandon Hilton of Parker Archery, and he does, I guess, a lot of the, you know, media now and some of their marketing. And I had a conversation with him that really hit home. And he said a lot of what Parker's always stood for is to keep price points low for working class individuals. And I looked at their new flagship bow for this year and it retails for $795 and you look at all the specs on it and it's like well this does what all the other bows that cost $1,200 for the most part are saying that they can do so I thought I would give this a chance and you know that gave me the ability to um Brandon and I actually worked out an agreement through my podcast where he said, Hey, if we're in need of, you know, basically some, some support and to get in front of some eyes, Parker has new engineers. We're building new bows. We'd like like to make a little bit of a push to let people know that we're out here and we're a viable option. So we made an agreement. He sent me a bow. I'm just starting to put it all together right now, but essentially primarily what I'm trying to do is see if for a, you know, a, a small fraction of what it would cost me to buy all the latest and greatest, most expensive stuff. If I can put a bow together that will compete with bows that can do all that for a fraction of the cost. So right there, that's pretty much what I'm doing right now. Uh, I just got my wife's bow set up. She also got a Parker bow, which is a pretty nice bow. It's a, it's a great option for a youth or a female or anybody because it has without a press, you can adjust the draw length from 15 to 15 to 29 inches, I believe. And from 20 to 70 pounds and yeah, ton of adjustability. You don't need a press. You can just set the thing down on your workbench and do it in, you know, five minutes to change the draw length and the poundage. So I just got her bow all set up and built and now I'm just starting to piece mine together. So, but you know, I'll add to, I, I, I hunt with a recurve bow. I spend a lot of time in the fall hunting with a recurve. So, you know, I've got that bow too. I was just looking in my garage yesterday. I'm like, this is getting a little, getting a little out of hand here, but man, <laughs> I don't know. I, I love bow and arrows. So. I, I'm the same way and I've been fortunate enough to I'm the kind of guy and in the business I do, like my bosses they're sponsored by PSE and we shoot PSE. Well I've shot PSE before I even started working with them. That's just kind of been my bow of choice. I've been shooting them a long time. And but there was a time where I felt like I needed a new bow every year and I was in within the business I am, I 
got a bow every year, you know, and now, sure. you know, and I'm switching everything and I'm like, finally this last year, I'm like, well, I guess it would have been 2015 or 16. One of those seasons I was like, I need to make like, just simplify everything. Like when I was a kid growing up, my dad would only let me shoot a one pin sight, you know, and, uh, you know, the rest had to be certain, certain way just because, you know, he wanted to bolt everything on my bow and not have anything go wrong with it. He wanted it to be simple and functional and don't have to worry about it. So now I'm kind of getting back to that. Like this year, well, I guess 2015, I went back to a one pin adjustable site. And I know you and I kind of briefly talked about that off, off podcast, but you know, a lot of people don't like them because they're like, well, in the rut, you know, a buck comes in chasing a doe. How am I going to adjust in time? And I like, I've never had that issue yet. You just kind of got to know. It's like shooting a pin gap on a on a multi pin site. You know, you just got to shoot enough with it, know your equipment, and knock on wood, I've not had that instance. But this year, also with my rest setup, I've shot a QAD my whole life, and I've not had any issues with it. But I started breaking it down to what you know the simplicity of it. Like if I was on a backwoods hunt, or if I'm out and my property and something goes wrong with that bow or that rest. Now I've never had an issue with it, but there will be that one time. It's not if it's, it's when it happens. And so I decided to go to a trophy taker this year and it's a full containment rest, drop away rest, but it is all limb driven. So basically if that string or anything breaks or frays or whatever, I can literally change that string if I have, I'm going to take extra, you know, D-loop string with me in my pack. I can change it in my stand and still be good to go. Because, right. you know, the 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 rest movement is not changing at all. It's paper tuned and everything. The QED, or the, the I'm sorry, the trophy taker is just, it's, it's very dependable. And I can tie that thing back on my limb exactly where I had it because I mark all my stuff where I'm at, my peep site, I mark everything. So if anything moves, I know where those marks are at and I can move it back. That's been kind of my take the last couple of years. And um, if you're looking for any sort of site, and I'm, you know, I have no affiliation with Spot Hog at all. I changed to a Spot Hog. This will be my third year coming in. My third year, I have a Fast Eddie XL with a dovetail, and it is by far the best site I've ever had. And I could hurl that thing off of a cliff, and it would not hurt it. And that's what I like about it. And a lot of guys get into that. That. Uh, that mode when they put it, their bow into their case and, you know, the sight or the stabilizer is too long. Well, the dovetail allows you to take the sight completely off the bow with a quick screw and put it back on and it it doesn't affect anything, you know, your sight, your sight in or anything. So um, that's just kind of where I'm going uh, with the simplicity of everything. And I'm starting to learn more about bow building myself, like paper tuning, I'm trying to do it all myself because... I'm pretty particular on who touches my bow and my bow guy that I've been using my whole life just kind of got out of it. So I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? So that was a good opportunity for me to start learning it and doing it all myself. So, yeah, I'm, I'm between a spot hog and, uh, I've had real good luck in the past with, uh, HHA, uh, products. So I'm yeah. kind of going back and forth on, on both of those right now, but yeah, you start, you know, I haven't built a bow in 10 years, so, uh, I haven't paid attention to what's out there really. Um, 
but yeah, I recently started looking and I'm like, oh my gosh, man, you really got to get committed to researching some of the stuff and talking <laughs> to people because the, the amount of options that are out there is just, just absolutely insane. But I, yeah. I just want something that's going to perform, uh, something that's going to be durable. I, you know, do a lot of hiking. <laughs> a lot of times I'm going through some nasty swamp and marsh where I'm, I mean, I, I had one hunt last year where I fell like I'm hard four times just getting in Holy to, crap. i mean hard where like i actually was hunting with my brother we were hiking in together in four circumstances he's like dude are you are you okay <laughs> you know and it's like yeah i'm good and you know my reaction when i when i'm going down is to always whatever i got in my hand be it a bow or a gun like make sure that that's safe you know yep yeah. which a lot of times i'm landing on my head my face whatever it's taking some bad spills so you know, my gear gets beat up a little bit. And so I definitely need something that's really durable. So, you know, a lot of times some of that stuff that has dials and switches and this and that is, is unappealing to me because it just looks like, you know, mechanically anything mechanical has the ability to fail. So right, yep. the, the less and less of that stuff that I have give the opportunity to fail, the more and more confident and comfortable you know, I feel with it. So yeah, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this thing comes together, but I should have it put together here in the next couple of weeks and get back to shooting and, uh, I'll be pretty excited about it. So yeah, for sure. I want to track one of those bows down and, and shoot it and see how it shoots. Just yeah. I'm, I'm very hopefully interested. I'll, hopefully I'll have it done by the time uh, me and you hook up and, uh, we can do that. We can do exactly that. Well, cool. Hey, I'm I'm not gonna keep you any longer. I got a lot more stuff, but we can we can cover it on another podcast too. And this was this was awesome. I appreciate you coming on and finally hooking up here and, and doing this. I'll I'm gonna keep these questions in my back pocket. We'll do a part two here soon. Even you know you coming on here again, we'll find some time. And then I definitely need to get down there. I was I was down at Lake St. Clair doing some musky fishing last year. Mm. Um, so I I'm I'm kind of familiar with the area i don't know where you're at tech or you know around lake st Clair, but i was down there yeah that's right where i am i'm just like a mile off the lake so uh okay yeah i was just gonna say you know anybody that is interested in any of this information i'm i'm just a lot of what i'm doing here is regurgitating uh stuff that people that are way more intelligent and have been doing this way longer than i have um information so you know i've mentioned that a couple times the hunting beast forum uh the hunting beast also has a, a facebook group um they're on instagram i advise anybody to find their content and uh you know uh, also probably one of the best things you could ever do as far as investing time into learning to deer hunt is go uh download every episode of the hunting beast podcast and probably listen to them at least a half a dozen times to try to retain everything that's in there. And then also John Eberhart has some next level approach to hunting here in Michigan. And then there's also another Facebook group that I just recently found that, uh, is it's similar to the hunting beast, but it's more evolved for hunting pressure here in Michigan. And that's called, uh, I think that Facebook group is called from bed to dead. Okay. I've never even heard of that one. And that guy's out of the the middle of the state here in Michigan. He's killed a bunch of giant bucks. Um, he's got all the 
he, he can back up everything that he says. And yeah, it's from bed to dead. You can find that on Facebook and that's a, that's a real valuable source of information as well. So. Well, cool, man. Where, uh, where can everybody find the deer hunter podcast stuff other than on the, you know, iTunes and everything. Yeah. The podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, Google play. A lot of them are on YouTube. And then we have some scouting videos actually on YouTube. Also, if you go to our, our YouTube channel and subscribe, it's uh, just a deer hunter podcast. Um, from that workshop that I was telling you about, we have some good video clips of, uh, you know, some in-depth stuff with Dan in fault and then deer hunter, deer hunter podcast.com is, you know, basically where you can link to any and all of that and find, find stuff. And also on our uh, webpage, deer hunter podcast.com. There's a lot of images of gear and some affiliates of the show. And most of those link to uh, discount codes for people that we kind of, you know, support and, have given us support so awesome well hey again man i know you need to get to work i appreciate you coming on we'll have to do this again for sure on you know the fall podcast here but i, I definitely need to get down there too and and uh on a, on a weekend or something and shoot some bow and shoot some, or you know drink some beers and and get with you guys and and do one for the deer hunter podcast as well i'm decent at shooting bows and i'm really good at drinking beer so we can make that happen <laughs> Perfect, man. Well, hey, you have a good Saturday uh, working, and I'm gonna I'm gonna actually go and enjoy my kid and uh, probably drink some beers today because it's gonna be a hot one. All right, man. Thanks again for having me on. I appreciate the conversation, and anytime you want to do it, uh, just reach out. I enjoy talking about this stuff a lot. So, cool. Thanks, man. We'll talk to you. You're welcome. Bye. And there you have it, Kevin Vistason from the Deer Hunter Podcast. You know, I appreciate Kevin coming on, and he's a wealth of knowledge with all that mobile hunting and public land and you know, he's been doing it a while and, and that's something I really want to get into this year, whether it's, you know, one, two, three sets, you know, I just want to get into public land and see how it is. You know, I've never hunted it before and it's a new growing thing right now. And I just want to change my scenery a little bit and, and maybe not burn out so many stands on my private ground. So that's something I'm really going to lean on him a little bit because he's been doing it for a while and he's been successful doing it. But yeah, um, if you guys will, do me a favor. Go to the Deer Hunter Podcast. Go to the iTunes. Find Deer Hunter Podcast. Subscribe to them. You know, Leave some feedback. They're, they're doing great things over there. And also look them up on their social media pages. They've got a website. And if you could, go to the Fall Podcast iTunes and leave a review. Leave some feedback and uh, leave a five-star rating if you, if you could. And uh, I appreciate everybody's support. Don't forget, you know, next Wednesday we're going to have an all-new episode of the Fall Podcast. 